Another epistle of Jude. I want to speak this evening on God and the ungodly at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God and the ungodly at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, please, verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the sense of your presence. Thank you, Lord, that you're here. And Lord, that you are and you will speak to hearts. We ask you, Father, to now take away any distracting thoughts or opposing spirits. And may they be bound under the name and the feet of Jesus. And may your word have free course. And may your word find a lodging place in hearts. Change lives, rescue souls, deliver men and women from ungodly ways, and glorify your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. In verse 15 of our reading, it tells us that the Lord is coming again to execute judgment upon all And to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. And of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The word or the term ungodly is used four times in this little verse of Jude's. It gives us an idea It gives us a taste and it gives us an understanding. If you want a clearer picture or a deeper insight to the heart of Jude as he is reading or writing this small narrative, it lets us see the sanctified, illuminated and inspired heart of the writer. And Jude here is opening his heart about the second coming Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude tells us who he is in the first verse of this little epistle. Jude, verse 1 says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now, note that. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. The word here for servant is the word doulos. And doulos simply means a bond slave or a love slave. And what Judas is saying is, I serve the Lord Jesus Christ, not because I have to, 
but because I want to. I serve him out of love. Not out of dread, not out of fear, not out of torment, not out of even God wrangling with me and telling me to do so. I serve him out of love. Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ, a love slave or a bond slave. Now we read in the Old Testament when the year of Jubilee had passed, every 50 years, people were free, set, liberated, according to their, their mortgages, if you want, or their debts. And they were all scrubbed. All debt is scrubbed in Israel. And slaves were set free in the year of Jubilee. But if that slave was to be set free, but wanted to stay with his master because he loves his master, because he realizes how good his master was to him, the master takes his slave. And he takes him by the ear to the post or the doorpost, some say of his own house and others to the gate of what you and I would call now of the government or borough council or the city or the gate of the city that he lived in. And he took an awl, a large nail, and drove it through his ear into the doorpost, piercing his ear, marking him for life. Blood was shed, and that was the covenant that the slave would stay with him forever out of love. Now that seems harsh, but the idea is that slave was free to go wherever he wanted, and he was also under the protection of his master, that none else could take him from his master's hand. None could pluck him away and bring him into slavery somewhere else. That that man belonged to his master. The all-pierced ear, the nail-pierced ear, was what the covenant was between him and his master, and it was a covenant of love. James, the brother of Jude, and Jude says the same. We are the doulos. We are the love slaves of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was serving Christ out of love and for love. And Christ's love for Jude fueled, filled, inflamed and enlarged Jude's heart. And enlarged Jude's heart so much it would lavish again his love on Christ. So Jude's idea was, I serve him and I love him because he first loved me. The important, the important point and the important message in this few words of this first verse is this. That to love Christ is to love him because he first loved you. To know that Christ died for you, shed his blood for you, went to the cross for you, gave his life for you. To know that he loved you you personally, and that you will love him in return. Jude says, I love him. I serve him with love because he first loved me. Jude's heart was lavishing love on Christ. And Jude's only object, his one and only aim and goal in life was to be forever at the full disposal of Christ. You see, we serve Christ because we love him. And we are here tonight because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We want others to know him. We want others to see the doors open. We want others to hear his worship. We want others to come in under the sound of his word. We want them to know him, for to know him is to love him. 
And to know him means you have had an experience with him, a regenerated heart that calls upon the Lord in salvation. And now he lives within you and you're here because of love. Make it the object of your life tonight, Christian, to love Christ more. To serve him with all of your heart. Jude is a servant, a doulos, a love slave. He's a slave to love. And that is why we can see, as it were, in the spiritual realm. That's why we can feel coming from his writings. When he's speaking in our reading this evening, in verse 14 he cries, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. He's telling men and women that the love of God is free and full for you. But do not reject it. Do not despise it. Do not turn away from it, nor cast it aside. Because God is coming in the person of Christ. And he, look at the verse 15, will execute judgment upon all. He is coming. Here the heart of Judah is, don't mess around with the things of God. Don't reject the love of Christ while it's extended to you, but rather accept it and accept him. Jude's heart here is open. Mentioning the ungodly four times in this verse. He is the servant of Jesus Christ in verse 1. He is also the brother of James. James is he who is the leader or was the leader of the church of God at Jerusalem at that time. And James we are told not only is he his brother, that is Jude's brother, but also James, we are told that he is the one who did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He did not believe that Jesus was the Savior, the Redeemer, or the Christ of God. He did not believe it. The reason James did not believe it is this. We read in John 7 and 5, you can also read when you go home, Mark 3, verses 21 and 31, of those who came to Jesus and gathered around him and denied him. And we're told that those who thought he was mad, taking leave of himself, that this was just a man that they had known. James was one of them who came with Mary, the mother of our Lord. And James came with other brethren, And we are told through this that James was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. James is the younger half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And younger because Mary was a virgin when Christ was born. And after this, Christ had brethren and sisters according to the line of Mary. They came and they would not believe. That is, James would not believe that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ. Thought he had taken leave of his senses. And we're told that he was an unbeliever in his elder brother. James has now seen his brother hang upon a cross and die. Watched him writhing in agony. Watched him crying over the Christ. And James has looked at Christ and seen him bleed and die. They've seen, he's seen him take him down from a cross and place him in a tomb. And James has heard of the news that Jesus was risen from the dead. James, at this point, as far as we know, is still an unbeliever. But we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that the risen Lord Jesus Christ 
He shows himself to up to 500 people and the apostles, the resurrected Lord, he who had risen from the dead. He starts to reveal his deity and his glory, conquering death, sin, hell, and the grave, putting to an open shame all the works of the devil. And he shows himself to the apostles, and he shows himself to above 500 people. But note what it says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7. It says, he showed himself to James. James who's seen him die. James who's seen him bleed to death. James who heard him cry from the cross. James who knew of his death. Listen, and go to the tomb. It was sealed in a grave. And he says that he's gone, he's dead. He is away, he's forgotten as it were to the world. My elder half-brother, his life has been taken and snuffed out. Now stands before the resurrected living Lord Jesus Christ. And James believes. You see, is it any wonder that James writes in James chapter 4 and verse 14. And he writes some words that should cause us to prick up our ears and to listen. Whereas you know... Not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little while. And then vanisheth away. And I wonder, did James think of a 33 and a half year old young man. Full of life. Full of vigor. Full of strength. Full of power. His half elder brother. I wonder, did James think about this and think about him having his life taken from him? A young life and saying, for what is your life? It is even a vapor. Did James think of the days when he was growing up? And maybe James had fallen and hurt himself and his brother comes and puts his arms around him. Did James think of the time sitting around a dinner table when Jesus would start to pray and bless the food and the anointing of God would come? I wonder, did James think of all those wonderful memories that family has? And now seeing his brother, he says, oh, it's such a short time. We think we have forever. We think that death is always at someone else's door. We think that troubles will not come our way. We think the grave will never claim us. And James looking says, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Think about your life. I'm sure the older people in here this evening would say their life has gone in a flash. I'm in my 40s and it's like I left school 30 years ago. And it's like a few years ago sometimes when I think about it. What is your life? It is like a vapor. And then it's gone. I wonder did James think this when he looks and thinks of his brother and that is the reason under inspiration to write it. Jude says he is the brother of James, which makes Jude also the younger brother of the Lord Jesus. So both James and Jude are looking for the coming again of Christ. Think about this. They're thinking our half-elder brother, that is on Mary's side. 
They were brothers to Mary. Fullness maybe Mary and Joseph. But Christ was God Almighty in flesh. He was the Son of the Father in heaven. And I wonder at times when we think about this, and we look at it, why James and Jude both look to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what James says in James 5 and verse 7. Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. He was sure that Christ would return again. In verse 8 he says, Stabilize or establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He's saying, keep firm in the faith, for Christ is even at the doors. Not only are they two brothers looking, waiting, watching for Christ's return, but they're warning, warning people in their day, and they're warning people here today. There's a warning that when Christ returns, some people have this lovely idea, oh, it's going to be a nice place and fluffy clouds and golden hearts and halos on our head and white suits and white dresses and all. Friend, when Christ returns, the world will be turned upside down. Listen to this. Jews' warning to us of the coming of the Lord gives us some examples of God and Christ at his coming. Ungodliness, unbelief, and how God has dealt with it in the past to link it with his coming. Now let's look at the scriptures for a moment. The little epistle of Jude, please. First of all, notice this, verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance... Though you, you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. When God came in sign and wonder, in miracle working power, in Egypt and Israel were covered by the blessing and the grace of God in Egypt, he saved them out of Egypt. In other words, he made a way. He delivered them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And they praised him on the other side for the waters came in and destroyed the enemy. They were delivered from all their oppression and all their sadness. And God had answered 400 years of prayer. Crying from their hearts, how long, O Lord, how long? Crying from their spirits as they're under servitude and slavery in Egypt, being treated badly and wrongly. I wonder when God, if there's a God, when he's coming. And one day God sent a man called Moses saying, let my people go that they may worship me. And God delivered them out. And he showed them, he answered prayer for them. And when they got out the other side, they forgot God and they believed not. And God destroyed that whole generation. Did you hear that? It was the younger generation coming up that entered Canaan. Let's look at the second one then. Verse 6. Jude, little epistle, verse 6. The angels which kept not their estate, 
their first estate rather, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Notice, unto the judgment of the great day. Here were the angels in glory, and Lucifer, the morning star, as it were, the the bright cherub which covered the glory of God, who is built with all beautiful stones, and is a creation of the Father. Some say the pipes that are in him were for worship to come through, the angels right through him, to make a beautiful sound in heaven, to worship the great creator, Elohim God, the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And so that the very angelic beings would not be consumed in his presence. There was an angel designed called Lucifer that covered. And that cherub or that angel that covered caused the glory of God to be reflected. And all of the angels could worship in safety. That angel fell, became known as Satan. Now there's other Hebrew words, but we'll just keep all the words that we know tonight. And that angel fell because of his pride. And he became known as Satan and was cast out of heaven. And the angels with him, one third of them, rebelled against Almighty God. If you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, please. We want to show you a quick snippet, a quick picture of what has happened in heaven or in glory. Revelation 12 and verse 7, you can read the chapter when you go home. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more. Notice their place found, or their habitation found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent which is called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth he hath but a short time. Here we're told of a war in heaven, and these angels were cast out during that war with Satan himself, cast down to earth, and it's that same devil who lures you away to sin, to through temptation and ungodliness. It's that same Satan or devil who blinds the minds of them who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. That's why men and women cannot see who Christ is and their need of a Savior. You're blinded tonight. We trust this evening that the scales will fall off your eyes, you will be illuminated in your heart, and you will see Christ as your only Savior. Here we have a war in heaven. Angels are cast out. And Jude mentions, Jude talks about these angels which left their first estate. Let's look at verse 6 for a moment. Look where they are. 
In verse 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own, their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. What great day? Revelation chapter 20, please, if you'll turn with it, to me with it, or with me to it, I should say. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We'll not read all of this as well for time's sake. You can read it again when you go home. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he let hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw the thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Let your eye just run down now briefly, please, to verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to the works. And death and hell, that is the grave in other words. Death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the Bible. That's not some country preacher. That's the Bible. The Bible says that not only are the angels going to be cast into this pit to the great day of judgment, but also all those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life, who live an ungodly lifestyle, who have no reverence toward God, they will be cast in to this lake of fire. Even those who have died and gone to the grave, their bodies are lying there, will be resurrected again. The second resurrection of the ungodly or the unsaved. I wonder what resurrection you'll be in. The first, when Christ returns, God willing, will look at it. Or the second, after the thousand-year reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the book of Jude again, please. Little book of Jude. And there, so first of all was Israel who believed not, Second were the angels who kept not their first estate. The angels are tied up, as it were. That is a spiritual chain, not a physical chain. In other words, they're under the control and power of Almighty God. Secondly, sorry, secondly is the angels. Thirdly, we look at verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, given themselves over to fornication. Notice, and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example 
suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now this is the word of God. This isn't me making it up. This is the word of God. It's not me making it up. So thirdly are Sodom and Gomorrah. These are a warning. We'll look at it now. Jude mentions these ancient cities, but notice what he also says. It's not just Sodom and Gomorrah. It's Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner. In like manner. Here's something to take note of. Ungodly company will cause you at some point to become ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities of filth and sin. And the cities around about them, it spread around them all. And ungodly company will cause you to live an ungodly lifestyle. And when an ungodly lifestyle and an unnatural practice are normalized and accepted in society, then it takes hold of others and brings that society, brings that nation under the same condemnation as themselves. Solomon Gomorrah, the sin of homosexuality. Solomon Gomorrah, the sin of perversion. And Solomon Gomorrah, the sin of ungodliness. It says that those cities around about them were in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Now, Solomon and Gomorrah are mentioned in Genesis chapter 9. And Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, leaves Abraham and goes to Solomon and pitches himself his tent toward it, then eventually he's at the gate of it, then he moves again till he's right in the government of it. And that's the way sin draws you deeper and deeper and closer and closer to itself. And Sodom and Gomorrah are the cities of wickedness. And in Genesis chapter 9, we're told that God comes down in the form of an angelic or theophany form with two angels with him. Abraham sees him at the tent door and Abraham makes them something to eat. The two angels go on and Abraham tries to barter with God if he can find ten righteous in the city, even five righteous, Lord, when you spare it. And God said, yes. If you and I live a godly lifestyle and stand up for Christ and for the word of God and that which is right, God may just spare our nation. God could not find it and we're told the two angels go to the two cities. And at night they, are, they come across Abraham's nephew Lot. And in verse 5 of Genesis 19 Listen to what the men say, banging on the door of Lot's house. It says, where are the men that came in unto thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we might know them. Well, maybe they just wanted to shake hands and say, welcome to Sodom. We want to know them. The word for know is yada. And it does mean to get to know. But the word that's used here is the exact same word when it says, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare a son. They wanted to know them. 
as a man knows his wife. In fact, if you read on down Genesis chapter 9, it explains the, the idea of this word yada because it says in it that Lot protecting these two angels, messengers of God, that Lot offers his daughters unto the men to protect them. Take my daughters and use their bodies, in other words. That's what they wanted. And the men wanted strange flesh. They did not want the women that were offered. Not that that was right. That was wrong. Lot had a great misjudgment there. That's another story for another time. Here we have uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, these two dreadful cities. The angels destroy them. Do you know in, in uh, Leviticus 18 and 22 and in 20 and 30, verse 13 that incest, bestiality and homosexuality, the practice of it are linked together in the same depth of depravity. You see, now you're normalized and I shouldn't speak like that. See, you're not being politically correct, preacher. You could be in the papers for that. Well, I hope they hear it. I hope they hear it. It is linked. But that's Old Testament. Sure, you should stone a woman in adultery. Well, listen then to the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Let's turn to it just for a few moments. Romans chapter 1, please. Speaks of those who, verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Note that. Who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. For this cause God gave them up to, notice, file affections. For even their women did change the natural use unto that into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned with lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. God says in the New Testament, God's word says, that it is vile affections. It's unnatural. And so we see our nation. We see the world is chasing after these things. And that which is evil is now good. And that which is good is now evil. You're not politically correct. You may do it at a Bible study when you know, when you know that there's no one who will tell on you. Do you know just these last couple of weeks, or three weeks maybe, that there is a person in the States, and there's another one in England, I think it is, my memory serves me right. And because of this uh, redefinition of marriage, you know when it will never affect the church, it will never affect a pastor who refuses because of his conscience to marry those who are of the same sex. Well, it's already that two of them are being taken to court. There's a, a baker, 
A baker, someone in a little home bakery refused to bake a cake with two same people for it because it was against their Christian faith to partake in it and they have been fined by the government and brought to court. That's the world we're living in. That's the ungodliness. But listen to this. Christ is coming and Christ will change all of these vile affections and all men will stand before Almighty God. You're awful hard. I'm not. That's the scripture. That's the scripture. Let me show you this. Turn with me to the book of Jude. Again, please. Or the little epistle of Jude. And by the way, you could also read 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 or 1 Timothy 1 and verse 10. You can read about that. When you go home, speaking of other affections that way. God destroyed the cities with fire and brimstone. And Jude, in his little epistle, verse 7, tells us this. Let's look at it. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, notice, are set forth for an example. What does he mean they are set forth for an example. The words here are set forth. The three words are set forth. In the Greek it's a word prokimai. Or prokimai. And it means to lie exposed. To lie exposed. Israel. And their unbelief. The angels who fell from heaven. Sodom and Gomorrah. Why are they in the scriptures? Because they're lying exposed for you and me to understand what is going to come upon the earth at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with men and their ungodliness. And the word here gives the idea of, say for example, you were to have someone over for dinner. And they're waiting in your lounge or living room and you're in the kitchen and you have a nice table there and you set all the cups and the plates and the saucers and the glasses and the sauces and and the knives, the forks and the spoons and you bring their dinner out and they can see all that you're putting before them. And as they walk out, it's all spread before them. That's the idea of these things being in Scripture, that these are being spread before you tonight. That's the idea. It also gives the idea of someone who goes to pay their respects to someone who has passed away. And you know what it's like when you go and you pay your respects and there is the person who has gone and passed away lying in the coffin or the casket. And you're going to pay your respects. You're looking at them. You're talking about them. You're nearly watching to see sometimes are they going to move. (laughs) They're on display. For everyone to see, to pay their respects. Here it is the exact same word. Jude says these things are set forth for you and I to understand what is going to come upon the earth at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It gives the idea also the word example. Set forth for an example, it means something that is held up as a view to a warning. So it's not something to look at and go, wasn't that a terrible thing? It's set forth for you to say, oh boy, God rained fire down there and cast the angels out there and and God destroyed Israel there who didn't believe. 
It's not for that. For the example means God says, I'm holding this up before you because I'm a God of love. God is love, the scripture says. But listen, God is love, but God has wrath. And the man and the woman who reject Christ, reject God's love, so that love of God for you will be shown in wrath on you at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, it is not set for you and I to have a nice look at, but for you and I to see, to hold up in front of people and say, look where our people are going. Look where our nation is going. Look what we're turning into. Look what is happening. And the judgment of God is coming upon men and women. You're trying to tell me when you look at the things that are happening in our nation. You're trying to tell me when you look at the things that are happening in the States. And all the disasters that are happening. And all these diseases that are coming. Are you trying to tell me that God is telling us something? Absolutely, yes, I am. The angels which fell and rebelled, which sinned are in chains, as it were, under darkness, awaiting the judgment of the great day. And it looks over them, or it it hangs, the idea is that God's control is looming. And here's an important point I want to get to, and I'm going to close at this and bring part two, God willing, next week. Here's a very, very important part of this message you need to grasp hold of. Those angels who fell and who sinned that we read off in Revelation chapter 12. Those angels who are under the the control, are under that power, under the restrictions of Almighty God himself, awaiting the great day of Revelation 20 when they'll be judged. Do you know, brethren, sisters in the Lord, do you know that you're going to judge angels? If you're blood-washed, you're going to be changed. And in the kingdom age, you're going to judge angels that fell from glory. That's the power of the heirs of God and Christ. You'll judge them. And notice this. This looms and hangs over these fallen angels. And there is no reprieve for them. And get this please. There is no reprieve for these fallen angels. They have fallen. They will stay fallen. They will be judged in their fallen ways. And then through their fallen actions. There is no reprieve. No turning back for them. Is it any wonder that in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, the apostle tells us of the angels of God, the angels who kept their first estate, the angels who sided with Almighty God and fought for Michael, uh, the archangel, against those angels and Satan. Is it any wonder in 1 Peter chapter, 12, chapter 1 and verse 12 that it says this, the which things that is Your redemption, salvation. Which things the angels desire to look into? Which things the angels desire to look into? These holy angels hear the good news of saving grace. They hear the gospel 
of our Lord Jesus Christ dying for us. The great plan of redemption and salvation. They see the spectacle watching, as it were, if we can picture it with sanctified imagination, over the very battlements of glory, as the Prince of Glory was hanging and bleeding and dying on a cross. For you and I, who were guilty, vile, hell-deserving sinners, depraved in all our ways and helpless. And they watched it all. They watched it all. Did any wonder when they saw the Son of God, God, very God, God himself clothed in flesh, come in the form of a man and hang on the cross for the Adam's race who had fallen in their sin. And yet these angels who had fallen have no reprieve. Is it any wonder the holy angels look over as it were and watch And they wait to see how God is going to be glorified in such creatures like you and I who were ungodly and dead in our sin. Now alive unto God and glorifying him in our manner of lifestyle and conversation. They're enthused by it. They're in awe at it. Which things the angels desire to look into. They stir in awe and wonder at creatures once totally depraved, now living holy lives to glorify God. They catch the overall supreme view of God's love. Sinners saved by grace, raised to a seat in heavenly places in Christ. And these angels don't understand what it is like to be saved or what salvation brings. And they look upon it with awe and wonder. And the human race, the human race turned him away. When the fallen angels have no reprieve and you're given that chance. The word desire, the angels desire to look into is the word for, it means passionate and craving. They have a passionate desire to know more. They have a craving in themselves to find out more for they don't know what it's like to be redeemed. I wonder is it any surprise to us when we think of our Lord Jesus in Luke 15 and verse 10 when he says these words. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Can you imagine those angels of God saying, the fallen angels have no reprieve. They have no chance. Their day is gone. They're awaiting that great day of Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment and the lake or the fiery furnace that burns for eternity forever and ever. And they have no way out, but you, sir, have. If you reject it when Christ returns, you have no excuse. There's no reprieve, no hope, but for those who put their trust, their heart, and their hope in Christ, 
this setting forth or this example is a warning. And what is it a warning for? Let me read this to finish. Verse 7. The suffering vengeance of eternal fire. Well, I thought I'd come tonight and hear how much I'm loved. And how it doesn't matter if I've been a bad boy, turn a good one. I want to tell you something. Good people don't go to heaven. And bad people don't even go to heaven. Redeemed, saved, blood-washed, blood-bought people go to heaven. When Christ returns, this earth will be like Sodom and Gomorrah, as we see it as turning. When Christ returns, the ungodly will be judged. It says, all the ungodly, all their works, all their deeds, all their ungodly things they have committed. Next week in the Lord's will, we'll look at it. May God take his word and stir us up. That's a, that's a somber word tonight. That's, a, that's strong language, but I have brought you it from this book. Not from my thinking. It's from this book. And it's been displayed for you tonight. The Lord says, this is what's going to happen. When my son returns, here it is. You better be ready. You better be ready. God bless us this evening. The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you.